Amen. Kids, you can meet at the back of the sanctuary, and we are going to dismiss you up to kids' ministry. Everybody else, you can be seated, and um, I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to John chapter 18. John 18 is where we're at this morning. So today is Palm Sunday. This is the day uh, we talked about it. We celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. People recognizing Jesus as their king. And what do they do? They, they wave palm branches around, right? They said, Hosanna to the son of David. What they were actually doing is they were quoting this verse from Psalm 118. A call out to God to save us. Psalm 118, 25 and 26, it says, save us. That's what the word Hosanna means. It's a call to God. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what they were doing when they were waving palm branches. <coughs> they were saying, we need someone to rescue us. We have a problem. Right? And the palm branches, they were a symbol to them. They were a way of them saying that we have finally found the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We found the king who has come to save us. So we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus is king today. Now this idea of kings and authorities, it is an important idea in scripture. Because scripture presents to us a picture of kings and authorities. And, and it's a particular picture of kings and authorities who fail to manage their authority well. They oppress with their authority. They abuse with their authority. Even the best king in scripture, we read this story of him and Bathsheba and how he arranged for the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so, so we got this like even dark picture of the best example of a king that we have in scripture. Kings fail. And as scripture presents that picture to us of kings and authorities, I want you to know, scripture actually is presenting a picture of kings and authorities at, at two different levels. It's presenting a picture of kings and authorities at the human level. So human kings and authorities, but scripture also presents a picture of spiritual authorities and their brokenness. Right, so, so you have essentially the human and the spiritual in terms of kings and authorities. You have the seen and the unseen. Essentially, as you read the Bible, you get this picture. That seen and unseen rulers rule selfishly with evil intent. That is the picture that scripture presents. Seen and unseen rulers rule selfishly with evil intent. And then Jesus comes... And he talks about himself as if he's ushering in something called the kingdom, right? a place where God's authority rules. Okay, so now reflect with me on the early part of Jesus's ministry. So John the Baptist, before Jesus starts his ministry, John the Baptist comes and he's out there in the wilderness and he's dressed in uh, camel hair and he's eating locusts, right? And he uh, has this crazy message. What is his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, is essentially saying God's kingdom is drawing near and the way that we know it's drawing near is that the king is here. He's arrived. Right? And so he's out there preaching this message. The king is coming. He's, he's drawing close. And then he sees Jesus one day as he's preaching and he goes, 
There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, uh, so Jesus and John are there, and uh, John sees the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and at Jesus' baptism, the voice of God speaks out from the clouds and says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And, and, and so we see all of this happening at Jesus' baptism, and then immediately after that, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, immediately after that, it says that the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. This is in the book of Matthew. So Jesus is driven out. He's now fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the middle of the desert. And, uh, and who appears to him while well, he's out there in the desert? Satan, the evil one, comes to him. And he tempts him. He offers him three temptations. I want to consider the final temptation with you. Verse 8, the, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Satan says to Jesus, who has come in with John the Baptist proclaiming him as king, Satan says to Jesus, Jesus, you know I'm king here, right? You know that this is my territory. This place belongs to me. And you know what? I can give you whatever you want. All you have to do is worship me. So verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. What just happened here? There was a power struggle between Jesus and Satan. Because Satan is one of those spiritual authorities that is a king who uses his authority to uh, oppress and he uh, is you know, ruling with, he's selfishly with evil intent. And, uh, and in his territory, Jesus is there, there's a power struggle, and what did Jesus do? Jesus resisted, and not only did he resist, he refused to recognize Satan as king. When he didn't bow to him, he refused to say, actually, no, I know that you're king. He wouldn't say that because Jesus knew that he was king. So what's the very next thing that happens? Literally, in Matthew, the very next thing that happens, after Satan flees, like Satan disappears, the very, very next thing, Jesus goes and he starts preaching. And what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you see what's happening here? Jesus, imagine with me, throw politics out of this for a second, imagine with me, Joe Biden walks in to Beijing, walks into China, goes into the middle of downtown Beijing, and says these words, members of the Chinese Communist Party, repent, the king has finally arrived. Can you imagine how do you think that would go for Joe Biden? <laughs> it would not go very well. It would create quite a problem. And why is that? Because the message is a hostile message. When somebody walks into enemy territory and says, actually, the people who think they're king, they're not king anymore. I'm king. That's a declaration of war. Right? No longer, he's saying no longer is it acceptable for you to remain Lord of your own life. No longer are the authorities in this world who they think they are. The real king 
is here. So because of that hostile message from that moment was birthed a conspiracy. A conspiracy that says this, we love the darkness. If the light has come, we need to extinguish it. That's the conspiracy that was birthed. From the moment that Jesus refused to bow his knee to Satan, a conspiracy was birthed to extinguish Jesus, to remove him. If the Son of God has come to disrupt our authority, then we need to end him and his message. Everyone whose authority is challenged by Jesus now has an incentive to get Jesus out. And today we're going to watch that conspiracy come to a head in the Gospel of John. So if you're new with us, uh, we have been walking through the Gospel of John. The last two months we've been zeroing in actually on his last few days with his disciples and trying to grasp what John is trying to show us as he recounts these last few days of Jesus' story. So let's talk about the conspiracy for a second. There are two layers of this conspiracy. There's the political layer. Right? There, there are Jewish religious power brokers, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. Their power and influence is threatened if Jesus is king. Right? And then there are Roman authorities who stand ready to quell any uprising of people who would claim allegiance to any king other than Caesar. Right, so you have these two political authorities, and it just so happens that Caesar and his representatives, let's call them Rome, right? Uh, Caesar and his representatives and the Jewish religious leaders, they are kind of working together. They have a mutually beneficial relationship. Caesar provides order and stability. Caesar certifies the authority of the Sanhedrin. Caesar uses his military might to ensure that the religious rule of the Sanhedrin is carried out in Judea. And what does the Sanhedrin do? They make sure that people keep paying their taxes to Caesar. They maintain social order by keeping the people practicing their own religion because you know what? The Jews historically have proven themselves to be a people who like to rise up when they're oppressed. And so neither of these groups has the same end game in mind, but it just so happens that both of these groups are able to work together and kind of manage this area called Judea. Their struggle, they have a power struggle, but... Their struggle is mutually beneficial for the time being. So that's the political layer. What about the spiritual layer? The Bible makes it clear that often behind human authorities, you can find the influence of spiritual authorities. Demons in the demonic realm. Like if you open the Old Testament, the pages of the Old Testament just kind of uh, show this, make this clear. In this story, there are spiritual authorities behind what is happening in Judea. I want to give you the first example of this. Caesar. There are two historical writings that identify him as something greater than just an emperor. Uh, He was called, number one, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. Tiberius Caesar, son of God. And the second writing identifies him as Tiberius Caesar, son of God, and then a clarifying phrase, son of Zeus. Son of God, son of Zeus. So what that means for us is that Caesar himself was recognized as the embodiment of the chief pagan god of the Romans. That's at the people of the land of that day. That's how they saw Caesar. He is the, the embodiment of Zeus. So second example of what's going on here. Jesus has point blank told the religious leaders, you are sons of of your father, the devil. You are up to something 
and you don't even know what you're up to because he's the one behind the scenes working this out for you. And we've been told that these sons of the devil have been conspiring about how to put him to death. John draws our attention to it many times. So why do I tell you all this? Because I want you to pay attention to how both of these layers, the political layer and the spiritual layer of authority, work together in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Watch as we follow each step of this conspiracy. So conspiracy phase one, Judas betrays Jesus. So the disciples are gathered together there in the upper room. Uh, Jesus washes their feet. uh, and, And as he's washing their feet, And serving them in this very intimate way, he says, one of you will betray me. And of course, John goes, hey, Jesus, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus says, well, John, I'm going to dip this bread uh, and I'm going to give it to somebody. And and the one that I give it to is the person who's going to betray me. And so verse 27 says this. Then after he had taken the morsel, he gave it to Judas. After Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. What this is telling us is that Judas has now become a tool of Satan. He is a pawn for Satan's conspiracy. He belongs to Satan. Remember, Satan is hatching a plot to get rid of this person who has claimed to be king who has refused to bow down to him. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Interestingly enough, anytime John is telling us that it was night, he's not simply telling us what the the, the light was like outside. He's telling us something at a spiritual level, right? The darkness of the situation that's happening right now. And so Judas goes out, and it was night. Judas went. He sold his betrayal of Jesus to the Sanhedrin for 30 pieces of silver. And then he said to them, follow me, I'm going to take you to him. Now on the surface, uh, the surface of this, what is happening is that Judas is exchanging Jesus for financial gain. But because of what John has clued us into, behind the scenes, the devil is using this circumstance to close in on Jesus. Okay, so conspiracy phase two, on to the second phase of the conspiracy. Jesus is arrested. This is exciting, guys. Okay, so number one, uh, verse 118. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, and, uh, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse three. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was standing with them. Okay, so check in. So let's just talk about the political layer. Political layer. Judas has some soldiers and officials with him, right? The religious leaders, they tire of Jesus. They want him out. Judas has made this possible to be done. He's uh, come in secret in the dark of night. That's what's happening at the political layer. Spiritual layer, though. What was the last thing that John told us about Judas? That Satan entered him. So when John says... Judas was standing with them, we should hear that as also understanding that Satan was standing with them. That was the last thing. So, so Satan entered him. If Judas is standing there, then, then Satan is also standing there. So watch 
what happens next. It's very important that you pay attention to what's hap- what happens next. Verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he. Now we don't have a bunch of time to get into it, but the name of God is a big deal in scripture. The name of God is powerful. The way scripture talks about the name of God is as if it's almost another person. Right, the name is God's identity as Lord of all creation. In Hebrew, that name is Yahweh, and it means I am. Everything, so everything else in all creation, it all has a beginning. Everything else is the effect of some cause. When he says I am, he's saying nothing caused me. Right? I am the uncaused cause. I get my identity from nothing else. Everything else gets its identity from me. That's what his name means. I am. And so when Jesus answers them, while it says that he says, I am he, what he literally says is, I am. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. What is he doing? He's saying his divine name. So it says in verse 6, with Satan standing there with them, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Satan, standing face to face with king of the universe, Jesus speaks his own powerful name, and it knocks Satan and everybody standing with Satan down to the ground. Right, like the force of him saying his name knocks them back. So somehow the spiritual crosses over into the physical and we are able to see the power of Jesus displayed when he says his name. And with that, Jesus made it very clear that no matter what is about to happen over the next few hours, the next few days, he is in complete control of the situation. He has all the power in what's happening. Okay, next phase of the conspiracy. Jesus gives himself over to be arrested by these people who came to them. So conspiracy phase three, Jesus faces trials. If you read the progression in all of the gospels over the next 12 hours, Jesus will face a total of six trials. He'll go before six different groups. There are gonna be three religious trials that he faces, and then after he faces those three religious trials, he moves on to three civil trials. The religious trials take place um, first, yeah, and then, and then he moves on. So when they heard that he said, when he's standing before the Sanhedrin, he has now an opportunity to, to kind of make his case, or, or they're questioning him, they're interrogating him. And what his goal is to do with them in these religious trials is to make it very clear that, that what they have heard about him, what they have heard about the things that he said, those things are indeed true. That he has said the things that they think he said. Right, so, so John 18, 19 and 20 says this, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Right? It's, it's wide open. If you have heard that somebody said that I said something, there's a good chance it's probably true that I've said the things that you think I said. 
Now, now Mark, when the Gospel of Mark recounts this for us, it makes, us, makes it even more pointed that Jesus is being very direct as to what his intention is to let the Pharisees know, right? So verse 61, it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says right out to them, if you think I said it, I said it. I am the promised king, the embodiment of the most high God. I am coming to establish my kingdom. He says it as plain as day. So verse 63, the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, if he had actually blasphemed, he would be worthy of death. But Jesus has proven time and time again that he is who he says he is. In fact, if you go back in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about Five witnesses that all affirm that he is who he says he is. And you know you need two witnesses to prove somebody guilty under Hebrew law. And so they conspire get together. right? Because they don't believe that he is who he says he is. They conspire together to assign him to an undeserving death penalty. But they won't kill him. They refuse to kill him. These Jewish leaders, they will not take responsibility for his Death. It's actually politically very dangerous for them to do. And there are three reasons why it's dangerous for them to kill Jesus. The first is that they would lose social clout. Right? There are a lot of Jews who are following after Jesus, a lot of interest. If they're going to engage in killing him without uh, there being like this public trial and that kind of stuff, they're, they're not interested in that. They don't want to lose social clout. Uh, there's actually also, number two, a high risk of them starting a riot. If they were to kill Jesus in some kind of manner where they didn't go through any official processes, they they risked starting a riot. And then the the third and very significant one is that they risked defiling themselves for Passover. If they take uh, Jesus' life into their hands, they would defile themselves, and that would be a problem as well. So what do they do? Well, you know, these religious leaders and Rome, they have a mutually beneficial relationship with each other. And so they say, let's take him to Caesar's representative. Let's let Rome kill him for us. So then Pilate uh, gets involved. And and this is where we now move into the civil trials. I'm not going to go through all of the trials. But essentially, like, just if I could run through things real quick. Pilate gets him, but Pilate doesn't want to kill him. Right? Because the death penalty in Rome, it's actually a big deal to assign somebody to death. You have to have some evidence that somebody did something to uh, execute somebody. And so especially... When everybody in Jerusalem four days ago was waving palm branches around and saying, this guy is our king, Hosanna, we're glad that he's here, Pilate doesn't want to be responsible for Jesus' death. And so Pilate sends him to King Herod and says, Herod, you interrogate him and tell me if he's guilty of anything. And so King Herod brings him in and questions him, uh, makes fun of him, says, hey, would you do some magic tricks for us? Uh, Jesus doesn't do that, but also Herod doesn't find any reason that he's guilty. So Herod sends him back to Pilate, says he's not guilty, and so now he's back in front of Pilate again for uh, this other situation. And so Pilate says, he comes up with this idea, I'm going to put him up here with a murderer, because every year we have to release a criminal for Passover. We're going to release a criminal back to the Jews. So we'll put him up here, Jesus, who they say is claimed to be king, and we'll put a murderer up here. 
And when he puts the two up in front of the crowd, they say, give us the murderer. You keep Jesus so you can kill him. Right? So, so, so that goes on. And, and now Pilate is very interested in what's happening. But at the end of the day, no one wants to be responsible for killing Jesus. Nobody wants to have that on their shoulders. Do you see the political games that they're playing with each other? Like there's, there's all of this exchanging and saying, you do it and can you find this? Like uh, the, the Jews come to Pilate and they say, you take him. But, but Pilate's like, well, he's guilty under your law. But they said, well, but we can't kill him under our law. Your law says that you have to kill him, right? But, but Pilate says, well, but he's guilty of religious things. And you know what? We don't really care about religion. And so they, they say to Pilate, okay, Pilate, wait a minute, we've got it for you. We can solve this problem for you. He calls himself king. Surely, Governor Pilate, official of Caesar, that is enough for him to deserve deserve death. Surely, Caesar has a problem with somebody calling themselves king. And they are right. That for someone who has amassed a large following, To call himself king in Caesar's kingdom is to challenge the authority of Caesar. So Pilate takes Jesus in for questioning. You see what's happening? Like the authorities at work in the world, they are not cooperative authorities. In fact, you see a lot of like massive lack of cooperation with these groups together. But through their playing games with each other, the enemy is using that the, game, the games that they're playing to close in closer and closer on Jesus. And so Pilate questions him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus then engages Pilate in kind of this philosophical discussion. It's very interesting. They have a little bit of a, a back and forth talking about truth. And, and other things like that. And at verse 36, it says, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? So Pilate, yeah, but, but my kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that you think of when, I, when you say kingdom. Right? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, they would have been fighting. And Pilate knows this, right? If, if, if I were a king who was like seeking to rule with military might, when they arrest, they wouldn't have been able to arrest me. They would have fought with the people who tried to arrest me, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate is sitting here thinking, as Jesus is talking, this guy is no king. He's not a military leader. He's a religious preacher. He's a philosopher. Right? He's talking about ideas of what the truth is and a kingdom that's uh, in heaven or uh, he's talking about other worlds, right? He doesn't equip people with weapons. He doesn't strategize. And so Pilate goes out. He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, listen, you might have a problem with him because of things that he said, but he is not a threat. And so to appease them, Right, because he knows that they're looking for blood. So to appease them, this is what Pilate does. He figures, I'm going to beat him. I'll have him flogged. I'll mar his body. And then I'll present, that, present him in front of them. And that'll fix their bloodlust. 
I'll present him and we'll avoid all of this political danger. Because to kill someone who's not guilty is a problem for Rome. Rome cannot just go around killing people who aren't guilty of something. And so he does it. He has Jesus beaten and bloodied. He wraps him in a purple robe, a royal robe. He puts a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and presents him to the people. And what do the sons of their father, the devil, say? Not good enough. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And so, verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Who else calls himself the son of God? Caesar. Caesar calls himself the son of God. When Pilate catches wind that this is what Jesus has been teaching, he thinks, okay, wait a second. There could actually be a problem with this. He might actually be challenging Caesar's authority. So the back and forth games continue. Pilate goes back to Jesus and says, okay, Jesus, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is cluing Pilate in on something that no one else is aware of. There is something much more significant going on here than what can be seen with the eyes. Greater authorities than Pilate is aware of are at work in this situation. So Pilate senses the gravity of this. And now he's not just saying, you crucify him. He's doing anything that he can to get Jesus off of his hands. He wants nothing to do with killing Jesus. Actually, if you read it, uh, the, this uh, story in a different place, uh, Pilate's wife has had a dream says, I, I've suffered much in a dream because of this man, right? And, and so somehow God has allowed Pilate to become aware of the unique spiritual realities behind what's happening and the gravity of all of that. And Pilate is now even, uh, it says, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. It was like, he, it gets even more intense. He's trying to get this guy off of his hands. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now what's happening? They're blackmailing Pilate. If you don't kill him, Pilate, you know what's going to happen? Caesar is going to find out that there was a person under your authority who called himself king and you let him live. And if you do that, you will no longer be Caesar's friend. So Pilate gives in. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
So this is what Pilate is doing. Pilate is mocking the Jews. He's making a point that the man that they have charged with insurrection for making himself a king stands beaten and bloodied before them without one single person coming to his aid. Nobody is fighting for him. The person that they're worried about calling himself a king right now stands in front of them and he is humiliated. He is not kingly in any way whatsoever. Pilate is essentially saying, you're making all of this fuss about him? Behold your king, Jews. And they still want to kill him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Pay attention now to what's happening in the spiritual layer. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Our king is not Yahweh, the I am the son of the most high. Our king is the one who gives us power. Our king is the one who maintains order. The one who keeps us in our positions. Our king is Tiberius Caesar, son of Zeus. Or as Jesus would say, you are sons of your father, the devil. So verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. From the moment Jesus refused to bow to Satan, Satan conspired to destroy Jesus and extinguish the light. And he made use, Satan himself actually made quite efficient use of the most powerful, renowned political system in the world to carry out his conspiracy. And the one who the Jews called their king Four days ago, with palm branches waving in the air, he was now standing on the precipice of his own execution. So what? Number one, Jesus had all the power, but remained humble. Philippians chapter two says this. It says to us, it encourages us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had every bit of control over this situation. It was clear. When he spoke his name, it knocked every one of them over. He was making clear to them that this was not being forced on him. That he was going willingly. Why? Because he knew his death was the only way to set us free. He became a mockery. He was a laughingstock. He was humiliated. And he chose to let every piece of it happen. Because he is the only truly humble king that would endure all of that to save his people. Number two. Satan's conspiracy was actually God's conspiracy, right? So, so, so why, why are the prophecies, so people ask me, uh, why are the prophecies of the Old Testament so vague, 
right? Like, why is it so hard to understand? And actually, like, there's a spiritual answer to this question. And the spiritual answer to this question is, like, the unseen authorities were aware of the scripture that was being written down. And if it was blatantly clear in those prophecies, then the unseen authorities would know God's plan and figure it out. But what God did is he did this thing that the Bible calls mystery. The gospel is a mystery, right? Which means that there was something that he was revealing throughout the prophets that was coming to be understood, but it was not made clear so that when the unseen authorities were reading those scriptures, they would not be clear on exactly how God was going to win the day. And so God's plan actually was to use Satan's pride against him. Right? God let the darkness close in on the light of the world. God let him who knew no sin become sin. God let every sinful authority conspire against his son because this was his plan for how they would kill him in order to make him an all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Satan didn't know this, but the blood of Jesus would actually become the purchasing power necessary to move people out of his kingdom and into God's kingdom. Right, when Satan, uh, what he thought was accomplishing his victory was actually ensuring his defeat. Jesus willingly gave himself over to the authorities uh, to have every piece of him experience the full weight of the brokenness of this world. But church, through that death is an amazing victory. Because if we believe in Jesus, Satan has no authority over us anymore. We belong to a new kingdom. Sin can no longer define us. We can no longer be accused before our Father. We are beloved children of God, partakers. The Bible says we're partakers in the divine nature, welcomed into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Our new name is, is Renovation Church. And yes, today we spoke about Jesus' descent into darkness. But because our King descended into darkness, we have been set free and are being renewed day by day into the image of his Son. So number three, decide who you will bow your knee to. Until we call Jesus our king, we are pawns of the broken authorities of this world to be used for their ends. So he went before us in humility and invites us. Will you humbly admit that you are not the Lord of your own life? Will you humbly admit that I know good and right better than you do? Will you humbly confess your need for my authority to define you? Will you humble yourself and make me your king? To everyone who bows the knee to Jesus now, he extends salvation from sin and death and hell. He extends forgiveness and reconciliation. He extends the promise of his return where he will come once and for all and defeat every false authority. And so I would plead with you to receive Jesus' invitation to break free from the authorities of this world. Believe in him and make him your king. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for your salvation that you extend to us. Thank you for what you endured. God, I thank you for the the mystery of the gospel of Jesus. This thing that you kept hidden from unseen authorities for generations. That when you came, you might pull the most fantastic switcheroo of all time. That you might use Satan against himself and defeat him. Lord, and and create a circumstance by which now people can be purchased from every tribe and every tongue and every language that we can be transferred from his kingdom and into your kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for these gifts. Thank you for what you accomplished for us. And thank you that this morning we can celebrate. That that, that as we talk about the darkness of the situation that was closing in on Jesus and the way political authorities and spiritual authorities were uh, playing games with each other and and trading with each other to to ensure that you died, Lord, that this was something that you allowed to happen, that, that in fact you ensured it to happen, that you might win for us the greatest victory that could ever be won. So Jesus, we thank you for being our king. Thank you for making yourself our king, for for inviting us to bend the knee to you and acknowledge your authority. I pray this in Jesus' name.